Over the past few years, I have asked you guys to give me a rating and review. And if you've done that, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's so helpful. But if you haven't, I get it. I kind of get it. Like, I'm asking you to go and click on this thing and then like, how do I do it? And then I have to come up with some kind of a review and I don't know what to say and I'll do it later, right? I, I get it. I've, I've kind of been there before. I, I know exactly how you feel. And so I'm not asking you to do that now, okay? What I'm asking you to do now is so easy. Anybody can do it and it literally takes like one second. Go into whatever you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on, they all have it, and just click on the subscribe button. Just subscribe. It takes one second. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with a review and write it all out and you know be self-conscious about it. Just hit that subscribe button. That would be so, so, so impactful for me. And if you're enjoying this and getting a lot out of it, that would mean the world to me. It really would. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Like, let's literally stop listening right now. Stop listening. Go and do it. That's how much it means to me. Nobody ever asks you to leave their show and stop listening for anything. But I'm asking you to stop listening right now. Go and just quickly subscribe. Come right back and take a listen. That would mean the world to me. I would really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. The problem is if you want to if you want to know what they want for their house, the, the house price can never be the start of the conversation. It really shouldn't even be the focus of the conversation. What you need to do first is go into that house, look around, do a walkthrough, all that. Start building rapport. Start talking to them. Find out why they're selling. Find out what their motivation is to sell. Spend the majority of your time figuring out how you can solve their problem. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate it. I have another great live uh, Q&A replay for you today. Had some great questions, lots of live interaction, tons of fun. If you're not there live, you should be. It's on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can go to Just Start Real Estate on Facebook. You can find me on uh, you can find me on YouTube, uh, on Twitter, all over the place. Right? We we stream this thing everywhere, but you should be there live and get your questions answered. Tons of fun. This time we talked about uh, somebody asked. If more valuable homes are likely to cash flow less than lower value homes. And so we had a conversation about that, what that means exactly. We kind of, I kind of broke that down. I uh, had someone ask me what to do with some inherited properties. They want cash flow, but they also want some money to pay off bills. And I gave them, I broke down kind of my strategy for how I would handle that. We talked a little bit about masterminds, how to know if you're the mastermind you're about to join is a good one before you join and spend the money. That's very important. Big question. I had an answer for that. Uh, and then I had some live stuff where people were asking me questions about essentially how to talk to sellers, uh, how to let them know that you are not going to be the buyer when you sign the contract as a wholesaler, for example. Uh, what if you you know sign a contract, you don't want the house but you're going to find a buyer for it. Like, How do you handle that communication with the seller? How do you handle that conversation? And so you don't say anything untrue or you're not being dishonest and you set the right expectations. And so I, I gave a lot of 
feedback on talk tracks and what that looks like. So very good episode, very interesting, very tactical. I think there's a lot of stuff you're going to get from this. So uh, stay tuned and uh, sit back and listen and enjoy. I give you my guys my latest live Q&A. All right, welcome back to my live Wednesday. I'm happy to have you here. If you're here live with me, that's awesome. If you're listening to this on my podcast, which is Just Our Real Estate, where I replay this every single week. So if you're not able to make it live, you can go on there and check it out as well. So you can just go into iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, and type in Just Start Real Estate. Or you can type in Mike Simmons, and I should come up on the top there. Um, I was out of town last week. I apologize. That was a recorded um, recorded live. It's kind of weird, right? You can't have a recorded live. But it was recorded and played for you so you could hear the answers to the questions that I answered that night. Um, but I was in Fort Lauderdale at an event where I was raising money for my real estate fund. And the fund that I have is a, it's a lending company. I lend money to fix and flip investors, uh, primarily inside of the Seven Figure Flipping Group, but I do loan money to folks who want to buy and sell uh, real estate. Um, and so I was raising money for that fund and, and kind of bringing awareness to it, and uh, I was gone. So I apologize for that. Uh, but hopefully, if you tuned in, you still enjoyed what you heard. You still got good answers to questions that you may or may not have had or even knew that you should have. Uh, but I am back live again today. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, I mentioned this at the top of these lives a lot, uh, but it's important because this is going away uh, sometime in the early next year. It's my direct mail free course. Uh, it's how I do direct mail. I have sent um, millions of direct, peel, uh, direct mail pieces out. I've spent over a million dollars in direct mail. And uh, when you spend that much money on something that costs 35 cents a piece, that's a lot of, of sending out mail. It's a lot of learning. It's a lot of making mistakes and figuring things out. And so I compiled all of that learning and what I know and how I do direct mail into a free course. You should grab that while it's still free and while it's still available. Uh, because here's the deal. Getting leads in real estate is always going to be one of the highest priority things that you do. If you start focusing on things in your company, in your real estate company, whether you're a house flipper, landlord, wholesaler, no matter what you are, if you take your eye off of generating leads and your marketing, pretty soon before you know it, your company is probably dying or going in the wrong direction. And so you want to be bringing leads into your company. One of the best ways I have ever seen to generate leads, not only my company, but I have coached and mentored hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I have dozens and dozens of friends that are doing this industry right. And they're doing it at a high level and they're building seven and eight figure businesses. And all of them virtually to a person agree that direct mail is primarily responsible for the success and growth of their company. And so if you're not doing it, you should be doing it. Grab my course. If you're doing it and you're not getting the results that you're that you're just loving and thinking that you've got this thing nailed and figured out, get my course. It's free. Just go and grab your spot. Like go and get it. Even if you don't watch it right away, if you're like, you know what? I'm kind of tied up until the beginning of next year. I just don't really have time. I'll wait grab it because it might be gone when you go to get it. If you get it now, you have it forever. I, I don't take it from you. And if I ever go back and update it and kind of make it more relevant for the time, whether that's next year, the year after, whatever, 
you'll get all of that, all of those updates for free. So go and grab it. <clears throat> How do you do that? Go to MikeSimmons.com on the front page. You can just put your information in and I'll get that. I'll get you access to it. Or you can go to MikeSimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. Also, if you just remember the name winning direct mail, you can go to winningdirectmail.com. So whatever is easiest for you, but go and grab that before it is no longer an option and it's not available to you. All right, let's dive into today's questions. Let's see. First one says, do you agree with this statement? More valuable homes are likely to cash flow less, if at all, than lower value homes. There's truth to that. I would say that is a true statement in a lot of cases. And traditionally, that's definitely um, the case more often than not. Uh, the problem is when you say cash flow, you're opening that up to an awful lot of possibilities because nowadays things like short-term rentals, right? Airbnb, VRBO, these sites have allowed us to take a house, an expensive, nice house that might not otherwise have cash flowed in a traditional long-term lease environment. It may not have cash flowed, but now you take that same house that's kind of on the more uh, you know valuable side or expensive side, and you make it a short-term rental, depending on where it is and, and kind of the way that you set it up, you might cash flow more. You will cash flow more in, in most cases than you would with a traditional long-term lease. And you might even cash flow more than some of the lower-end houses. What it used to be, or, or I shouldn't even say what it used to be, because short-term rentals have been around for a long, long time. Traditional thinking used to be, and I used to tell people this, and I still do sometimes, right? If you're saying, I don't want to do Airbnb, I don't want short-term rentals, right? I just want long-term rentals, okay? If you if you tell me that, then this theory is still relatively, it's pretty accurate, right? So you have like the scale. And on one end, very, you know, very extreme end, you have real inexpensive houses that cash flow a lot but there's really no appreciation. It's not going to be worth more in 10 years than it is now, right? It's like maximum cash flow, minimal if any appreciation. Now on this side, you have high appreciation and minimal cash flow because it's typically a more expensive house and you buy it not for the cash flow, you buy it for the appreciation, right? And there's usually the scale that we have. And then as you go into the middle, you get houses with some appreciation and pretty good cash flow, but then the more cash flow you want, you the lower you know the value, the lower the purchase price or lower the all-in uh, investment that you have to make. And then, so to give you a really big extreme, right? 10, 12 years ago in Michigan, the Detroit area, people saw it. It was kind of national news, and there were people coming from outside of the country because they were hearing you could buy houses in Detroit for five hundred thousand two thousand dollars that would rent for eight or nine or a thousand dollars per month right it's like maximum cash flow it's a ton of cash flow right the problem is those houses are not in good neighborhoods so the appreciation potential is next to nothing it's just not going to appreciate those houses are cost a thousand dollars now they'll probably cost a thousand dollars ten years from now there's in bad areas right but if you can keep renters in them, the cash flow was really great, right? Really, really great. Now, on the other end, like I say, you've got these expensive houses that 
don't rent for enough for the cash flow to be significant. And sometimes it's break even, but they're in really nice neighborhoods. And so, you know, they always appreciate they're worth more now than they were five years ago. They'll be worth more in five years, five years from then they'll be worth even more, right? They're always going to appreciate. So you have this house that, you know, you may buy it for a quarter of a million dollars, $250,000, but in 10 years, it's going to be worth $500,000. And in 25 or 30 years, it could be worth a million. You know, you can see that trajectory over time. And so a lot of times the higher priced houses cash flow worse. The change to that is the the rise in popularity of short-term rentals, Airbnb type houses. And so now you can take this house that maybe you bought it for $250,000, but it's near a cool little downtown or it's near some ski resort or it's near some really you know big lake that's a tourist attraction or whatever. And so now instead of that $250,000 house renting for $2,000 a month, and it's sort of like kind of break even proposition for an investor. Now, if you short term rental that house, right, you, you put it on Airbnb and advertise it that way. Now, maybe that house is a $5,000 a month revenue, right? And then by the time you pay all your expenses, maybe it's cash flowing a couple thousand dollars. And so that's a reality now that people are actually getting those, those kind of numbers. Those aren't totally fake numbers. They're realistic numbers. And so you know, nicer houses now can cash flow if you're going to use them like that. But if you just want long term, one year, two year leases, more expensive houses and nicer neighborhoods, a lot of times end up being an appreciation move more than it is a cash flow thing. Maximum cash flow usually is like minimum price, maximum cash flow, maximum price minimum cash flow. It's just the way it usually works. It, I'm sure there's exceptions. So if you're listening to this and you're like, no way, I live in a town where really nice houses cash flow. Okay. But that's that's the exception. It's not the rule. Usually expensive houses don't cash flow. Cheaper houses do cash flow, but the cheaper houses don't appreciate usually, right? And sometimes it's not so much cash flow. Sometimes it's like, how long do you want your renter to stay? And sometimes the nicer houses and the nicer neighborhoods, you tend to have renters that stay in the house longer because they like the school system. They like the neighborhoods, right? They don't want to move. And so sometimes renters tend to stay a little longer in the nicer houses and the nicer neighborhoods. So that's another thing to consider. But yeah, I, there's some there is there's some truth to that. The more valuable homes, the less cash flow and lower value homes. Well, a lot of times higher cash flow if if you can keep you blue. So there's a lot of variables, right? You have a lower priced home. The implication of a lower priced home is that it's not in a great area. Sometimes, a lot of times, not in a great area, not in a great area, sometimes harder to rent, sometimes harder to keep it rented. So those are all factors too, when you're thinking about that. All right. Let's see what we got in the chat. Mike Smith is here. What's up, buddy? All right. Mike says, Hey, Mike, love the show and your expertise. I'm just wondering what are the best ways to ask a seller how much you need, how much, let's see, what are the best ways to ask the seller? Oh, I see, dot, dot, dot. How much do you need for your house? Um, okay, let me see. Uh, okay, that's a different question. All right, so the first question is, how do you ask them how much they need for their house? Um, usually... Uh, the problem is if you want to if you want to know what they want for their house the, the house price can never be 
the the uh, start of the conversation. It really shouldn't even be the focus of the conversation. What you need to do first, Mike, is go into that house, look around, do a walkthrough, all that. Start building rapport. Start talking to them. Find out why they're selling. Find out what their motivation is to sell. Spend the majority of your time figuring out how you can solve their problem. And in doing so, once you sort of agree that, hey, I can solve your problem, you need you need to be out of this house and into your next house or moved into wherever you're going to go, another state, another house. You need to do that by the end of the year, right? It's December 21st right now as I'm recording this. You need to be there by the end of the year, okay? Uh, the MLS, traditional real estate realtors, they cannot accomplish that. I'm an investor. I can accomplish that. I can get you out of here in 10 days. But for me to do that, you know, and this is like after a long conversation, right? Maybe you've been there for a half an hour, an hour. You say, all right, to, in order to do that, the price that I'm able to offer you is X. And usually X is lower than what you actually ultimately could offer them, like maximum allowable offer. But first, you have to focus. We as investors get up in our head about what we can pay and how are we going to convince them and how are we going to get them to our number. You get them to your number by creating rapport, building trust, solving their problem, then telling them what you can pay. Very likely what you're willing to pay is not what they're willing to sell for, but you anchor them at a number that's a little lower than what than what you know they're probably going to want. And then they're probably going to come back and tell you what they what they want for the house. And very likely they're going to give you a number that's a little higher than what they'll ultimately take. And then you start kind of working your way backward. But as you're doing that, as you're sort of trying to find that middle ground or a number that you both can agree on, you just keep bringing them back to the problem. Mr. And Mrs. Seller, you said you needed to be out of this house and in Florida with your daughter because she just had a baby and you don't want to miss that and she needs help, whatever it is. You said that was that was number one thing. You need to be out by the end of the month, okay? End of the month is really fast. I can make it happen and I'm not going to get a mortgage. I'm not going to make you wonder if I'm, it's going to get approved. None of that. It's cash. I'm going to be able to buy it for sure. But in order for me to move that fast and for all the work that I'm going to have to do to get this ready, this is the number I have to be at. You know, I want to be at 100,000. You're at 130,000. I can't give you 130,000. Could you do 110? I think I can go up to 110. You know, you start working that conversation. I don't think I can go up to 110. Well, let's just talk about what happens if I don't buy this house, okay? If I don't buy this house and you do end up putting it on, on the MLS, best case scenario, you get an offer the first week and it's going to be another 45 days, maybe 60 days before you get to closing because they're going to have to do an inspection. I'm not going to do that. They're going to have appraisers that come through. The bank is going to send through appraisers. I don't make you go through that. You're probably going to have a lot of showings before you actually get an offer. I'm not going to make you you know, keep your house clean and, and go out every two or three nights while we have walkthroughs and people. like I'm not going to put you through all that. I'm going to get you to your, to your next stop within 10 days, which is really pushing it, right? That's really fast. But I have to, you have to work with me a little bit. I know ultimately you want 130, right? But you know, right? We walk through and the kitchen has, it's, it hasn't been redone in a couple of decades and the roof is a little on the old side. So there's a lot of work that I'm going to have to do to get this ready. I want to help you get down there and I will get you down there, but we've got to work on this price. And then you start talking like that. It's not so much saying, what do you want for your house? Now, 
when you, the person answers the phone, whoever is taking your leads or whatever, they should be trying to get a price out of the person. But usually what happens is the sellers will not give you a price or they'll give you a price that's ridiculous. It's retail, right? It's like super high because they're not going to they're not going to tell you. You have to get in the house, you have to create rapport, you have to create trust. That's how you start getting toward the real price. But really, like I said, it's really more about focusing on their problem, focusing on their challenge and their motivation. Why do they need to move? And by the way, if they don't have any motivation, if they really don't have to move, like if they could live there forever and their whole life would be just fine and they have no reason, no strong reason to move, the likelihood of you buying that at the right price is pretty small. So, um, you know, you've you've got to hammer if they believe if they truly have motivation and they 100 percent believe you can solve their problems and they trust you getting to the price that makes sense for you is going to be so much easier. All right. Next question from Mike, a different question. If I know I do not want to purchase a property to rehab myself. How do I tell the seller, essentially, I'm going to try to find a buyer for them? You never tell them that. That's not the way you approach that at all. Um, it, you know, that's, that's what a wholesaler does, right? The wholesaler theoretically doesn't want to buy anything. They don't want to rehab anything. They only want to wholesale it. And if I or my team, my, my acquisitions manager, went into a house and said, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, um, we can solve your problems and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, by the way, we're not going to buy the house. Like we're going to sign this agreement, but we're not going to close on it. We are not going to. We don't know who's going to close on it. It's somebody. We're going to try to find somebody, right? I'm being a little bit facetious, but that's really the reality. I don't know who's going to buy the house when I sign the purchase agreement. I just know it's not going to be me. And so you don't tell them that, right? You kind of have to go into wholesaler mode and it's like you're signing the contract and you're telling them that the house will close and they will make X amount of dollars or the house will sell for X amount, right? And you refer to, the, you know, the, the language we use is our investor partners, our, our um, you know, our funding partners, we say those kind of things. That's the language we use when, we, when we're signing and saying, yeah, we're going to go back. And like, for example, in this scenario where I'm offering 100 and they want 130, and let's just say we come up to 115, right? We meet in the middle. And I say, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, I, was, I came into this appointment um, authorized and fully able to give you $100,000 for your house. Now, we're at 115. I wasn't really authorized to spend 115, but... I think this house is great. I love your story. I really want to help you. I really want to be there for you and solve this problem. Let me go and talk to my investor partners and see if I can convince them to go up in price a little bit. Now that I've seen the house, I know the roof is newer. I can see that the kitchen is really, really nice. The bathroom's in great shape. A lot of the floors are good. Like I don't have to do as much work as I thought I might have had it to do. Let me go back and talk to my investor partners and see if I can convince them to come up to 115. And so that's how we have that conversation sometimes. But we never say we're going to find them a buyer, right? Because to the seller, you're the buyer, okay? And that needs to stay the perception until the closing, right? And then, you know, you, you can double close so they don't ever, you know, or they're not in the same room. Or what I used to do was I would have the buyer there, I would be there, and I would just sort of like talk and keep the conversation going. And if somebody asked who that was, I would just say it's my investor partner. I would talk to the buyer beforehand and say, listen, you're my investor, you know, you're my investor partner on this and just don't don't rock that boat. And so that's how we did it, right? The key is, the key is, 
don't promise something that you can't deliver. So never go into an appointment and say, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, I guarantee you I will buy this house and I will close on it in two weeks and then come back to them and say, uh, I couldn't find anyone to buy it. Uh, I have to back out, right? You're an absolute horrible person if you do that. But if you say, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, we, we agreed on a price of 115. It's a little higher than I meant to. Give me two weeks. I'm going to go talk to my investor partners. We're going to run the numbers again. We're going to look at the renovation budget and we're going to come back and I'll let you know whether or not I can actually go up to 115 or if I can't. Give me two weeks. I'll come back with just an honest answer and we can either agree to close on it because we can come up to that price. We can rip up the contract and just part ways on good terms, no hard feelings, or we'll maybe talk about a reduction at that time if, it, if it's even something you can consider. And so we're always sort of letting them know that we're going to work on their behalf to get that done, but there's a chance that we're going to come back in a week or two and we may have to like relook at the price. If you, if you make that the expectation, you're a good guy and nobody's mad at you. If you imply or explicitly tell them that it is a done deal and you are going to close in two weeks or in a month and you don't, you're kind of a jerk, right? And so you got to just, it's its about setting expectations. We And the, the reality is when we go in at $100,000, almost never do they just say, okay, that's great, right? Usually there's a negotiation. Usually we come up a little bit on our on our initial price, which is usually a little lower than we can actually pay. We come up a little bit. And so we give them this, hey, give us a week or two. Let us go back and run the numbers again. Let us talk to our contractors. Let us kind of really dial this in and make sure that we can come up to the number that you want to come up to. I think that we can, but give me two weeks and I'll come back and, and we can have that discussion. That's the way you handle it to set expectations for the fact that you go out and you put this out to your buyers or whoever, and nobody wants it at that price. It's just way too high. You can come back and say, Mr. Miss Seller, I told you I'd come back, give you an honest answer. Listen, I talked to my investor buyers. We just can't go higher than what I initially thought we could spend. That is actually the most that we can do. We can rip up this contract. No hard feelings. You can go out and, and find someone else or put it on the MLS or let's talk about a reduction and see if there's any way we can get this number down a little bit more. So that's how we have that, that conversation. All right. Uh, Chadwick Bearden says, Merry Christmas, Mike. Merry Christmas, Chadwick. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, all right. Mike Smith. Ha. I know a wholesaler should never say that. It was the easiest way to ask you that question. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, man. I, it, never, 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 never say I'm not the buyer because you are just, you are unraveling the entire conversation when you do that. And I know some people have a problem with that. I get it. It's not It's not dishonest. You're not telling them you're going to be the one closing on it. It's implied, sure, because you're signing the contract. But here's the deal. If, if you tell me, Mike, that you are going to send me $100 for Christmas, all right, you're going to send me a card with $100 in it. And I, am get, I end up getting a card on your behalf from somebody else who's it's came out of their bank and they send me a hundred dollars, but I know it's, it's the promise you made of that hundred they're covering it. And they're saying, I don't, I don't care. I want the hundred. And so if you're going to buy my house for a hundred thousand dollars, I don't, as the seller, I, there's, there's absolutely no reason for me to care 
who that money comes from. As long as when I get to the closing, the sale price is $100,000 and I'm getting what I was told I was going to get. That's the promise you're making, that the house is going to be sold for the price that you agree upon. You're not making any promises that it will be you. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, it, you just have to set the right expectations and don't say anything that's not true. And certainly don't make promises you can't keep. That, that's the name of the game. That's how you stay on the, you know, on Santa's good list, not his naughty list, to use a Christmas analogy. Um, all right. Mike Smith, 100%. I never promise what I can't deliver. In fact, I underpromise. Awesome. Good. Always underpromise and overdeliver. It's just like the best way to put a good taste in people's mouth about you. But don't freak out. I mean, if you have a house that for whatever reason you don't want to take it down, but you know it's a great deal, sign that deal and go find somebody who will close on it and, and make sure it's done. And we don't, by the way, when we find buyers, we don't just go, all right, it's between you two now, seller and buyer, you guys deal with it. No, you have to stay in that transaction because to the seller, you're the buyer and they need that, that warm, cuddly feeling that this is all going to work out because it's an unconventional sale as it is, right? They're used to having you know, a realtor involved and all this, like they, they're kind of feel like they're flying without a net and it's a very stressful, tense time for the seller, right? They're a little bit trusting in you that you're not a flake or you're not going to just do something weird. So you have to stay in that transaction. You are the face of this, of this whole thing, right? The buyer is going to ultimately bring the money to the table and buy it, but you have to stay involved. They don't want to talk to the new buyer. They don't know that person. They don't want to know that person. And in fact, you try to put those two together, eight out of 10 deals will fall apart. They just will. It'll be a mess. Most buyers are not the best at dealing with sellers in my experience. They're just not. They just want deals. They're used to dealing with wholesalers. It's very cut and dry. There's a lot of shorthand conversations. Everyone kind of knows the deal. The minute you go to a seller with that kind of um, sort of like assuming they know everything and like talking to them as if it's all going to unravel, it'll just, it'll go to heck. It'll be gone. So you can't do that. All right. Let's see. No more, no more new questions. Let's hop back into the questions that I got sent real quick. Okay. Um, question is, let me put it up on the screen. I have inherited five properties, two single family homes and three mobile homes and would love your thoughts about what to do with them. I would love to pay off some bills and establish some passive income. Okay, well, I don't know in your market how mobile homes are viewed, but if this were me, just with what you've given me and what I know what your goals are, I would sell the mobile homes and rent the single family houses. I, I just think that's probably a smarter play. I don't know anything about the single family houses. I don't know if they're in good areas or bad. I don't know if they're in good shape or bad shape. But assuming you have five properties that are in reasonably good shape, two of them are traditional single family homes and three of them are mobile homes and you need cash right now, but you want also passive, I would sell the mobile homes. Because uh, in my experience, in my market, Mobile homes are just less desirable. Most, I think any market, mobile homes are less desirable. And so I would probably just sell those to make the quick cash and not have to fiddle around with them. And then I would keep the two single family homes, maybe take some of that cash, pay off bills, take some of that cash, do some improvements on the single family homes, get them up to snuff, rent them out for maximum rental value and, and move on. And that's what I would do. Pretty straightforward. All right. One more question, unless there's a live one, Mike. And uh, Chadwick, you guys are uh, 
welcome to hop in with a new question. If not, I'm going to answer a different question. All right, here we go. Next question. I am thinking about joining a mastermind. What questions do I need to ask to make sure the group I'm joining is actually going to provide me with value and justify the price that they charge? Um, I'm a little bit biased here, right? I have um, a, a coaching program. Uh, it's not a mastermind, but it's a coaching program with me. Um, it's group coaching and um, it's mostly geared toward wholesaling. So that's an option. If you want a true mastermind where there's a lot of people in it and a lot of um, content and and face-to-face meetups and and all that stuff and a Facebook group that you can go into. If you want that, I'm, I'm biased. I think there's only one that exists that I know for a fact is of high quality and will not disappoint you. And it's seven-figure flipping. I talk about it on this show all the time. Um, if you want to find out more about seven-figure flipping and where you might fit in, there's two, there's two levels to it. Uh, there's a, there's sort of like a beginner level that you can get into if you've never done a deal or if you've only done one or two, there's a level for that. And if you've done like a lot of deals, if maybe you've done more than 10 deals or you, you have like this, you know, six figure business that you're currently running that you want to scale up and get to seven figures, then there's a little bit higher level group that you can join inside of seven figure flipping. So reach out to me directly. You can go to sevenfigurefliping.com if you want, but if you want to just talk to me about it and understand like from from my perspective and i i've been a part of that group since 2015 um i'm happy to hop on a call with you and talk to you about it and see if it's right for you but to me that's the only mastermind that makes sense i i just i've heard bad things and i'm not going to badmouth any other masterminds i'm certainly not going to name them by name i know that seven figure flipping is of the highest quality and integrity anywhere it just is right um and so we can talk about that if you want to all right uh let's see <clears throat> let's see mike smith one more here regarding something you said earlier about the seller negotiation process you said to anchor the homeowner with a low price i assume you don't feel they need to give a num- number first then um <coughs> excuse me yeah i'd rather them give a number first but i don't necessarily care if they don't but my number is going to be low, right? And so in this, let's just say that my maximum allowable offer, for example, is uh, $110,000, right? That's my maximum allowable offer. Uh, my team is going to go in and probably offer somewhere around 90. We're, we're probably going to be about 20 to 25% lower than um, than what we can actually pay maximum. So we'll come in at 90 and they'll say one. 30, you know, maybe. And then we'll start talking. Well, why, why do you want 130? What do you, what do you, um, do, do you, how do you know your house is worth that? Or like, is that your mortgage amount? What do you owe on the house? Like, we'll start asking those questions. Um, but we do, if we give the first number, it's going to be low, right? If they give the first number and they say 130 and we know we can go to 110, we may go to 100 and say, well, we can do 100, right? And then we'll kind of work from there a little bit. But yeah, we're always going to start lower. We're always going to anchor low for sure. Um, because if we say 90 and we go up to 100, they got us up 10 grand. We could have went to 110, right? So we could have gone a little higher. We feel like it's a win for us because we got it 10,000 lower than what we ultimately could have spent. And they feel good. They got us up 10 grand, right? Maybe we get them down a little bit. So yeah, we're going to anchor. You know, we usually use that technique, anchoring a little bit low. Uh, all right. New question. I think I just answered it. 
Yeah, I think I did. I don't see anything new, 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 new. Mm, no. Okay, cool. All right, Mike, you're on the clock. You've got five seconds. You throw another question there. I'll answer it. Otherwise, we're calling it a night going once, going twice, three times, four times, five. We're out. That's it. All right, guys, it's been a blast. Mike, thanks for being here. Chadwick, thanks for being here. Those I know, by the way, I know I've got people watching this like flying a wall, not participating because they tell me all the time, hey, I love your Wednesday show. I'm, I'm, I, I'm tuning in every single week. I've never seen him ask a question. So, Mike, thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for stepping up and asking questions. I appreciate it. For those of you that are watching Fly on the Wall, I still love having you here. A lot of love for you, but you can ask questions too. Don't be ashamed. Uh, don't be afraid to do that. I'm I'm here to do that for you. So, anyways, guys, if I don't talk to you again, which I won't, have a good Christmas. Uh, drive safely. Be responsible. Enjoy your family. Have a blast, and I'll see you in a week. All right, guys, we'll see you. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay, until next time.